Alrighty, we're reading all of Luke chapter 16 today. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another man commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. 
merciful Father, we've uh, come here this morning and we've already uh, covered a lot of ground. We're just aware we've all come uh, with things in our hearts and in our minds. We live in a world uh, that is messy, that is hard, life is hard, relationships, um, all sorts of things going on in our lives. Um, Father, please would you still our minds now, still our hearts, uh, to hear the word of your son, to hear your word. That we'd leave here encouraged and built up in faith and suitably transformed and changed uh, to live lives for you and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, he was born in 2007. Yeah, okay, we all were. Um, Some of you may not be old enough yet to remember a thing called the GFC, uh, global financial crisis. The whole world economically went into meltdown. The Oscar-winning movie, The Big Short, it tells the story of Michael Burry and the housing market collapse in America that led to it. And um, were you impacted, I wonder? We had some newly returned missionaries from Africa. They lost over half of their savings, their investments. They, they just retired. Um, but not Michael Burry. Uh, the, the film... Uh, and um, it's, it's a true, true story, traces the, the life and the story of Michael Burry, who in 2005, he was the manager of Sion Capital. And he began to short or bet on the collapse of the US housing market with his client's money. So just imagine that. You've invested, I don't know where your super's going into, but just imagine someone uh, took all that money and invested it in something that no one else on the planet was doing. How would you feel? Uh, well, his peers thought he was mad and his clients increasingly angry at his reckless ineptitude. But history records that the US housing market did collapse in 2007 and exactly at the time that Michael Burry predicted. Not only did Michael Burry um, return, uh, uh, or predict that, but he returned $5 billion to his Five billion. He made them over five hundred percent on their money. Overnight, their anger was turned to praise. Michael Burry was a student of history. Uh, the book and the movie called The Big Short tells it well. He listened well. He observed keenly around him. He assessed the evidence, and he saw the future before anyone else. Like the manager in this parable from Luke 16, I think Jesus would have, provide, would have actually praised Michael Burry for how he listened and then how he acted with wise courage to shore up his future and that of his clients. This passage is all about how to listen and to shore up the future that really matters. And he tells the parable of the shrewd manager uh, in Luke 16. We're nearly three years into his public ministry. He's uh, teaching especially his followers, we're told there in, uh, in sentence one. And he's teaching them about the importance of being good listeners to God's word when, you know, what, 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 when it comes to their future after they die. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Now, I have uh, moved, we live down um, in that horrible part of the world around McLaren Vale, sort of Uldinga down there. But just imagine you've got a big property owner and he's uh, got a, a manager in and he's hired out a whole, a whole, his property to a whole lot of um, 
share farmers or, or farmers who are growing all sorts of things on the property. And, and the manager is charged with, with looking after all of that. Okay? That's, that, that's the sort of um, the picture. But this Southern Vale's estate owner, he's heard some serious charges about his manager wasting his money. Now, we're not actually told, are we, what the charges were, how he was wasting his money. We don't need to imagine because there's stories like this in the newspapers all the time. We get the idea. And so verses 2 and 3, his boss calls him in and he says, look, what are you doing? What's this I hear about you? You Give me an account. You, You can't be my manager anymore. One of the important things, especially with parables and reading the Bible, is to notice what is not there. Do you notice that there's no response from the manager in the parable? Uh, that um, he, he doesn't try and dig himself out of a hole. There's no excuses to justify, no blaming others, no attempt to even try and keep his job. He knows he's guilty and he knows that his boss knows that he's guilty as charged, doesn't he? I don't know what your story is. Um, I spent. I grew up on a dairy farm. I uh, walked away from the idea of God in church as a young lad, and spent the first 25 years of my life, you could say, wasting the gift of life that God had given me. Uh, not living for God, living for my own happiness, uh, trying to find life and pleasure and, and meaning in anything that wasn't God. Um, and as a 25-year-old, when I started work as a, a, a doctor and uh, at Quinlan's Hospital. You know, strange things started to happen as I saw people die in front of me, realised there's a line in the sand for all of us. Um, and the more money I earned, it was just really weird, the more sort of empty I sort of felt, like there had to be more to life than money and career and family. You could sort of see it a bit before you. Uh, and then just, you know, I'd live long enough to be start bumping up against my own immorality. And anyway, coming off a night tired, I blurted this out to my first boss, uh, registrar, and said, oh, I don't know what life's all about and stuff. And and then she just stunned me, looked at me and said, well, actually, I'm a Christian uh, and I think life's all about Jesus. If you're serious about finding the answer to those questions, then um, you need to have a look at Jesus, which I'd never done as an adult, never read a Bible or anything, been to church. So um, she said, you do that at my church, come along. So I went along by myself, walked in, uh, Trinity City, you know, 300 young people. You know, I'm, I'm from a country. I thought only old people went to church. Uh, you're young and good looking, can I just say. Uh, but, um, and, and for the moment, you know, I think I heard the Bible read and, and just a pretty, you know, a, a talk and I'd sort of never heard the Bible explained this way. I didn't believe it was true. I mean, you know, people don't rise from the dead. I just finished a six-year medical degree. And, um, but it was weird because by the end of it, I sort of just found myself sort of, um, I didn't know what the word was, but I guess stirred, convicted, that if, if, it, was, if it was true then I just fitted really neatly into the category um, where I'd treated God like a block of wood <laughs> uh, and ignored him and, uh, you know, that, that I was in that sinful category. Anyway, so I prayed a stupid prayer. I just want to know the truth, you know, whatever it costs. Um, be aware of the taglines in our prayers, okay? Just warning you now. Um, and uh, four months later, you know, I was just, the more I looked at it, you know, the truth, the historicity of Jesus... Uh, but it's just the moral goodness and truth of Jesus. He's just good for life. Um, and so I, I couldn't give my life to Jesus quick enough. You know, that was in 1992. Uh, maybe some of you weren't born then in 1992. But, um, but, but that's me and it's, it's that idea that um, 
We've all been gifted life. And we, don't, we all fall short of, of how we could be expending and using our lives for God's glory and honour. But back to the parable, what does the manager ask himself? He said, well, what am I going to do now? My boss has taken away my job. I mean, just imagine you go to work tomorrow. Like happened to a mate of mine two weeks ago. He just said, sorry, mate, um, you're out of a job. <laughs> Restructure. <laughs> and he didn't do anything wrong. But it's a bit like that. And rather than leave his future to fate or chance, he decides to use the little time remaining to fight for the future he wants, doesn't he? Because he's really clear about the future he doesn't want. Did you pick that up in the parable? Have a look with me. See, verse 3, he says, Look, I know I'm not strong enough to put on a high-vis vest and dig. I don't want to do that. And I don't want to become like a homeless person and have to beg. And so he uses the time he's left to make friends for the future that he does want. He's focused. He's urgent. Verses 5 and 6. And so he calls in each one of his master's debtors one by one. He said to the first, Well, how much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. Now that's about 3,200 litres of oil. He said, Well, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. So cut it in half. Now you only owe him 1,600 litres. Now that's three years' pay that he's just forgiven. He's just wiped the debt off. Um, but he's just getting started. Uh, he calls in the next bloke. Well, what do you, what do you owe my master? Um, and he cuts his bill from 100 measures of wheat, which is 45,000 litres of wheat, to 800 measures, which is about 36,000 litres. Now, that's 8 to 10 years' salary that he's just wiped off the debt. I mean, look, if you work for a bank, anyone here work for a bank? Investment agent, credit union, anyone? Like just, anyway, just go in. If you're in a position, just have a go, you know, offering your, your organisation's money just to, to clear the debts of someone and see, see what your boss says. And, and can you let me know how that goes for you? Um, so I've never been going to do it, to be honest, but anyway. But of course, the shocking twist in the parable is that the owner likes what he sees, doesn't he? The master commended the dishonest manager. Now, what, what's Jesus praising here? Now they did a brilliant job, just nailed that, um, that, that talk. And I'm sure you'll get it by the end of the week, Luke. Um, but Jesus is not praising the manager's dishonesty. The rest of verse 8 makes that really clear. He's praising that he had acted shrewdly or courageously wise. The master is commending his shrewdness in light of what he'd heard and, and the future that he was, he was really aiming for, trying to sort of, uh, I guess, secure the future that really mattered for him. And Jesus says, whenever we do that, that's shrewd. That's wise, says Jesus. But of course, he doesn't tell us how to get ahead in the world. He tells us how to get ahead uh, in the economy of God's kingdom, doesn't he? And so he tells us the point of the parable in verses 8 and 9. For the people of this world are more shrewd or wiser in dealing with their own kind than other people of the light. I tell you, says Jesus, use worldly wealth or unrighteous wealth or mammon to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. And that's why we know Jesus is not talking about how to get ahead in the world. You'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. He's desperate that people understand what's at stake when we die. What's Jesus saying to those listening then and here now? Well, in the parable, Jesus is God the Master. God the Master who's come personally to hold the appointed managers of God's people to account. These are the religious leaders that are grumbling about Jesus 
you know, um, they're really upset that he's claiming to be God's Messiah, that even they need to submit to him if they want to be saved. You can That's um, context back in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. But how have Israel's managers uh, been mismanaging God's resources in Jesus' day? I mean, outwardly, um, they've been I mean, looked on fire for God. Uh, you know, they had the, the outward appearance right and... Um, but Jesus sees through it all, sees the hypocrisy between their public and their private lives. And let's be honest, isn't this just the hardest thing about being a human being on the planet? I'm trying to get that resonance between you know, the outer you and the inner you. <laughs> I haven't got it there. No. We, of course we won't get there. It's one of the big struggles of being human. See, God had given these religious leaders, he'd given them a trust to be to faithfully live out God's word themselves in their own lives, so to be to be good models for his people, but also to faithfully teach it, teach God's people to love and obey God's word for their lives. And a bit later on we heard a case example A where they had not been doing that when it came to divorce and marriage. But Jesus says, I see your first loves. And it isn't God and his word and his people. Which brings us to the, uh, the all-age uh, verse. No one can serve two masters, verse 13. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And, and what I loved about that all-age talk, one of the best I've seen, I've taken lots of pictures, so uh, um, is what is it about us that we just think we're the exception to the rule? We think we can do the impossible. <laughs> and blokes, if you're thinking that's not me, um, you know, if you're married, you've got a partner, just ask them and they'll tell you exactly how you try to do the impossible. Um, you know, what's, you know we, we, think, we think we can actually love God and money at the same time. At least we give it a good try especially in the West. You know, thinking that we're loving God honourably while pursuing possessions and pleasure like a sort of a, a secret mistress. But like a rabbit caught in headlines, their reaction, they hear very clearly what Jesus is saying, don't they, the religious leaders? Did you pick it up, verses 14 and 15? The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this, were sneering at Jesus and Jesus says to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your heart. And we've all been there, maybe you're there at the moment where you're trying to keep up appearances, keep people around you happy, you know, pleased with whatever you're doing. And, but it's, it's, just, it's just such a hard place to live a God-honouring life that we as we've got to live to the applause of one, always, the applause of Jesus. But those last four words... God knows your heart. Every now and again, you know, you're reading your Bible and you come across words and they just like stop you in your tracks and you just sort of... I think those, these, these, these four words fit into that category. Now, I don't know what really scares you. My wife's scared by cockroaches, okay? She is up on the chair. Um, but isn't it a scary and sobering thought that God knows my heart? better than I know my own heart. That God knows 
all the thoughts and the motives that I keep tucked away in the secret places, you know. We often spend a lot of energy trying to keep them there. Don't want people to find out. God sees it all. He knows it all. God knows me better than I know myself. Knows you better than you know yourself. Which, can I say, is a really good thing? Because we can run to him and part of our begging and prayer to him is, God, please, please, will you show me what you already know about me that I need to know? <laughs> to live a more God-earning life for your glory. See, what's Jesus saying here? He's not saying give all your money to the church to be saved. He's not saying we can somehow buy or barter our way into heaven. I mean, it's only by faith in Jesus. We all know you cannot buy love and acceptance and when you try, it ends up in having toxic relationships. Jesus is simply saying what we all know to be true. The relationships that matter most to you and to me will be the relationships that control us, that control our affections, control what we think about, control how we use our time, control actually how we use our money, who or what we spend it on. Jesus' question of each of us this morning is what future you and I are living for at the moment. Just like this manager used his master's resources to guarantee his future, after already mismanaging them the first time around. Did you notice that? So he's already wasted a whole lot of his manager's money and now he's doing it again in an even bigger way. (laughs) So Jesus and his death on his cross for the forgiveness of our sin is God's resources of inexhaustible grace for human beings who are mismanaging the gift of life. This, this second time round gift to purchase us for his glory. It's a gift for rebel human beings to escape certain death, to escape certain judgment before Jesus and ending up in the torment of hell forever. It's the very place that the rich man in the next parable ends up and he is shocked that he's ended up there, isn't it? Did you pick that up? He didn't expect it. It's a shock to him. But that's where he got sent by God. And so wise and shrewd are those here this morning who are urgently making the most of God's generous resources of partnering with grace while alive, while you still can, to guarantee that you end up in heaven and not hell when you die. If you're here and you're still trying to work the whole Jesus question out, this is the nub of it. And this, this is what it's all about. This is why Jesus died. It's what the cross is all about, what Easter's all about. Christmas, that's why he came into it. It's that this, to gift you this future, a forever future with God in heaven. Wise and shrewd are Christian followers or disciples of Jesus who will be like this manager, who hear and heed Jesus' teaching to be actually putting our whole life, everything about us in orbit around Jesus as our King and as our Saviour. To use whatever gift of time, talent, money God's given you for his glory till you die. It's a good gift. But it's to be used for God's glory. The only reason, isn't it, God's holding off the day of his son's return is because he's desperate for more people to know, to hear. Anyone take in a grand final yesterday? You know, biggest ever crowd since 86. Every seat full, standing room only. That's heaven. Heaven's MCG. There will not be an empty seat. Standing room only. 
guarantee that. Such is God's long-suffering love. He wants as many people to be there as will respond to his word. And this is what it means for us to, to, to be shrewdly stewarding our time, our affections, our resources. Here, locally, for, for people you know, in mission in your suburbs, great ideas heading towards Christmas, get involved. But all those people living outside of our capital cities as well and overseas. And so Jesus commands his would-be disciples here this morning and it is a command in the original language. Make friends for yourself by means of whatever unrighteous wealth of this world, money or possessions, so that when you die and your money and possessions fail you, and they will, you might be welcomed into God's eternal dwellings. Not just by Jesus, but people there who are there because of how you have so been like the trout swimming upstream. (laughs) Because it's the way you've lived your life. You've gone against the grain. Not hoarded, but given away. Got involved in mission. Last few years, isn't it? It just reminds us every year the powerlessness in the face of death, you know, devastating bushfires, viruses, wars in Europe, rising inflation, you know, economic costs. I mean, it's just all a reminder of just how fragile our lives are and our livelihoods. The things we spend our time and our effort building, they've got the look and the feel of permanence, don't they? But yet, along comes a, a virus. Bang, you know, a fire, a war in Europe, rising interest rates, a global financial crisis. Or maybe it's a diagnosis, you know, that's terminal, like what's going on with my sister at the moment. Hoping it's not. But the reality is, the moment we're born, we've all got a terminal diagnosis because one day we are all going to die. And Jesus' point is that day should bring everything in our lives into incredibly sharp focus. Who and what are you living for? What future are you living for? Anyone taken the Queen's funeral or anything of it? Anyone? Great. Um, again, uh, encourage you to go on and, and watch, you know, skip through the songs and stuff. But the amazing testimony, you know, 70 years in life she lived to serve Jesus, her king, and defend the faith. The promise she made before millions as a 21 year old. Imagine making that promise as a 21 year old. Despite being worth, uh, you know, 500 plus million dollars at her death, Queen Elizabeth knew she couldn't take any of it with her. There would be no use to her in death. And so as in life, so in death, her last word was faithful to Jesus, her king. As Marcus Welby said so aptly uh, in his sermon, Jesus and his resurrection define Queen Elizabeth's Christian hope. And this resurrection future is the future she determined to live for. Did she get it right? Was she perfect? No, she, she didn't. She just tried to be faithful day in and day out. She was given a trust and she was trying to be trustworthy, faithful. Because she just, at the end of the day, she knew the future that mattered. What is the future that matters most to you? What's the future we're going to invest in, risk it all for? God's given us his all, his everything for us, his own son, he's given us his best. Is that how you currently sum up? how we're responding to God's grace towards him 
Is he getting your best? What's the finish line that we're running towards at the moment? Are there any aspects about that finish line that need to be recalibrated in light of Jesus' word to you this morning? I encourage you to not go to sleep tonight without having a good think and pray about that. I showed you a picture of Glenn and Beth McDonald's, uh, five kids, and um, they were in a, a much larger ministry and, and, and place when, when he got the call from the previous national director of Bush Church Aid. You know, hey Glenn, heard you've had a bit of experience, you know, in sort of mining communities, and what do you think about taking the family to Roxby Downs? <laughs> Living in the middle of the desert, seven hours from anywhere, 4,000 people, take your kids and. He said, what? No, you're mad, no way. He hung up on him. Anyway, rings back a few weeks later. Oh, look, you know, please will you consider... No, look, I can't. You know, I've got young kids and things are going really well here and, you know, we've, we've got challenges like most families have with kids and schooling and health and medical and, you know, no way. Hung up on him. He rings back a third time and says, look, would you just please pray about it and have a look at it? And so anyway, I thought, oh, okay, he's keen to get him off his back at this stage. So he says to Glenn, let's have a look at the, some of the stats from the town and, and we'll pray and stuff anyway. He looks at it and realises that these mining towns like Roxby have people coming to make fast money because they think money is the, is the answer to happiness. There's kids, there's families, there's new, newly arrived immigrants there, over 300 different language groups in the town. And, and they're lost and, and because they're dislocated, they're searching and they're empty. And so he unexpectedly found himself convicted, him and Beth, and, thought, and so he rings a few weeks later, he rings uh, Mark Short up and he says... We'll go. And now they don't want to leave. <laughs> is, is life hard out there for them? Oh, yeah, it is. Isolated, you know, seven hours down to Adelaide for the medical appointments. Is God using them? Oh, yeah. Every week, conversations with people who got those questions that I had as a 25-year-old. And that's the difference our partnership can make. Prayers, giving. But maybe that's you. Do you know the thing that's most valuable in these places? Alice Springs, Darwin. Just ordinary Christians, ordinary punters like you and I who are willing to go with your vocation up there for a few years, whatever, for a season. Uh, live in, just get involved. Just one or two Christians make such a massive difference in the life of the church. Could that be you? And why not you? What future are you living for? The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And they all said, Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, what a gift it is to, to gather like this in a place privilege, uh, comfort of um, uh, free from persecution. Thank you so much for the gift and call of your grace on our lives. Uh, Father, we just pray that you would help us uh, to not leave your word to us here this morning um, unfinished. Please help us to, to do that ongoing work, prayerful work, um, to just recalibrate where we need to turn away from, turn more fully towards you, to put our lives more fully in orbit around Jesus, your Son, our Lord and Saviour, who died 
for the sins of the world. We pray this for the sake of the lost who are still yet to hear, the sake of the church that you are building everywhere, and we especially pray, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name.